This is a beautiful golden glove, and you can't sully it. That is the conversation you had as a 14-year-old. I'm just putting In it out In my there. mind. Did you have that conversation, or are you bullshitting? It probably sounded more like, oh, can you put this on? <laughs> Hello, I am Jade. And I am Ellen. And we are Ellen and Jade at Your Cervix. We are here for a podcast again. We're going to do an episode on teen pregnancy. Um, Neither Ellen and I were pregnant as teenagers, or at least I don't, you weren't pregnant as a teenager, were you, Ellen? No, I don't know. (laughs) There there might be older Ellens running around out there in the community, but she's not aware of them. Um, I wasn't pregnant as a teen either, but uh, we, as usual, we've chosen an area that we have little to no expertise on, Mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about it for the next hour or so. I mean, I will say I had a lot of sags. As a teenager. As a teen. And that's why we Mm -hmm. feel we're pretty much experts at the area, because we... We did have sex as teenagers, so we're going to talk about uh, teen pregnancy. Um, so first of all, trends in teenage pregnancy. The current CDC, the CDC figures for teen pregnancy as of 2015 is that the birth rate amongst teens, so which are defined uh, between the ages of 15 and 19. So they don't actually include those really young teens, like the 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds in that, in that cohort. But uh, the current rate is 22.3 per 1,000 births. So um, of 1,000 women who are having babies in the country, 22.3 of those are teenagers. And that's an 8% drop from 2014. So actually what we've seen over the last three decades is a considerable drop in the teen pregnancy rate from the 1990s. Right. And so the CDC also says that the teen pregnancy rate has declined 41% and the peak was in 1990 of 69.5 per one. 1,000 women, and then in... No, I'm sorry. That's an error. (laughs) That was in 2005. So in 1990, it was 116.9 per 1,000, and in 2005, it's 69.5 per 1,000, which is a big drop. Right. So um, it's important to note that the USA has the most significantly high rate of teenage pregnancy in the developed world. However, the vast majority of teens who have babies are actually in the the developing world. So 90% of teen mothers um, are from the developing world with the vast majority of those being from um, sub-Saharan Africa where there is still a strong tradition of child marriage and, um, you know, basically I uh, I think probably the idea that those women don't have a lot of uh, employment options, don't have... There's really not much else to do but to be married off and get pregnant, which is very sad. However, it's important to note that that's also the options for many um, American teens based on where they live, which is always a, which is one of the fundamental, fundamental factors on whether you will end up a teen mother is where you're born. Like, mm-hmm. what suburb, what town, what state in particular you're born in. Um, so, other trends in teenage pregnancy... Um, in, so, as in 2007, um, as Ellen said, the rate was around 40, around 40 per um, 1,000 teens, but uh, it's dropped significantly. And part of the the biggest significant drop was in 2007, 2008, um, the United States elected a certain president who had um, pretty progressive ideas about what... Was that Trump? (laughs) That was... (laughs) That was oh, our, man, our oh, man in office. He cares. We are going to talk about Trump a little later on. But actually, no, we're just going to flash back to um, the election of President Obama. So <laughs> around 2008, he, uh, along you know, with the bodies that be, um, really reverted course on the way that uh, sex ed was 
uh, implemented and contraceptive services mostly. So prior to that, there had been an emphasis really on abstinence as a way to prevent teenage pregnancy. And I don't know about you, Ellen, but abstinence was not part of my teenage sexual I mean, I plan. Heard about it. <laughs> and I was I was heavily encouraged to abstain, <laughs> as a matter of fact, which I felt really significantly influenced me to not abstain right. and to actually probably fuck everybody I saw. <laughs> but, right. you know, so if that was the intent, I would say kudos it, to the abstinence movement. That did not work for you. That did not work for me. We have talked about um, that kind of thing. We were, uh, there was, uh, we were talking about a couple. I had spoken to a midwife who, remember we talked about that epi- uh, in that episode where they, a couple couldn't get pregnant mm-hmm. and because they, and they ended up that they were ha- not having sex properly. They would properly, they were just rubbing themselves on top of one another. <laughs> Which was, that's eighth grade. Right. I consider that eighth grade. We call that dry <laughs> humping in the biz. <laughs> so, the gene to gene, or just with that really nice barrier method of cotton panties, (laughs) moistened cotton panties. I'm going to put every gross word together. So I will say in Florida in around 2003, I worked with teens. So I worked at a shelter with teens aged 10 to 19. And somehow we were underneath the umbrella of the school board regulations. And we had weekly Planned Parenthood came in and talked about safe sex. They had one of those pregnancy bellies. So we did a lot of education with the teens about that. And then you know, kind of safe sex and pregnancy prevention. And then the school board voted that we could, you could only talk in schools about abstinence. Right. And, and so we were unable, we couldn't have Planned Parent, Parenthood come anymore. And this, I think we had talked about that where people, the kids didn't know how to have safe sex. We had a huge rise in chlamydia. Um, and they were using like sandwich bags for a barrier. Oh, God, that's awful. Stuff like that. I cannot imagine so having sex with a sandwich bag. I just that's not, no. This, this that I've had went, bad sex before. <laughs> that I mean, I've met sounds. some people that were the equivalent of a sandwich bag. I think if I had had, my <laughs> <laughs> I've had sex that felt like the partner was I a sandwich I've bag. I've been accused of laying there like a sandwich bag. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm not sure anyone's ever accused. I was my own. I know I have laid there like a sandwich bag, but I can maybe one that was left in the water for too long. It was like one of those. It was one of those Vegemite sandwiches in the bottom of my son's backpack that has been left there for a week. Right. Uh, So going moving on. Moving on. So going back to so with the election of President Obama, they instituted a spate of trying of new sort of educational. uh, ideas about w- what uh, sex education should look like and mm-hmm. how they were going to combat teen pregnancy. And most importantly, in 2010, what they did was Congress enacted to drastically reduce the amount of funding that was going to abstinence-only programs, which were the predominant sex education program at that time. And so then to shift a lot of that funding towards evidence-based sex education. What? You're what so crazy. He's he a crazy guy. He's a crazy guy. I miss his crazy smile. Well, you know, like, talking about evidence-based versus, you know, all, you do some real research, like you look up things that have, <laughs> like, actual basis, and I, like, prefer my empirical or qualitative research, which <laughs> El- is where I talk El- to some people about some t- stuff, and then I form <laughs> a really loose opinion that's really, <laughs> you know, so... I, I feel like, you know, speaking to women, you know, in their 30s and 40s about the perception, the social perception of teen pregnancy is that the rates have increased. Right. And I hear people talk about this all the time. And then it always goes back to the 
teen mom show and how it's glorified and that there's and that you see pregnant teens like they're in schools and like three of them are pregnant at the same time and what's happening but you know looking at the statistics is actually declining but we're not hiding those people anymore before right. if you were pregnant in the 50s and 60s or even, I don't know even the 70s once again this is not a research based 1970s I don't know if they sent them away but you get sent away you'd have your baby a baby goes up for adoption you weren't encouraged there were no systems in place to help a young mother stay in school you know I think one unfortunately one of the factors of that might be is that amongst leggings <laughs> no <laughs> a cotton lycra blend so you can visibly see their pregnant right. is what, where it, I'm going with the leggings that's right I mean before we were we were encouraged to wear balloon yeah, balloon dresses now that and, you can now, tell and now that we wear Spanx Mm-hmm. It's totally different. Okay, sorry. The other, the other, the other contributing factor might also be um, the fact that white teenage girls, or let me rephrase that, Hispanic and African American teenage girls are twice as likely to be pregnant than white teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And um, as per usual, the the vast majority of the message on in popular culture on those teen programs is white as white girls, right. and and we and education is veered towards a white audience and that kind of thing. And also, I think. Um, there are reports to say that as a society we're becoming much more racially segregated than we were. And so those communities where t- teenage pregnancy is still high, nobody looks at those communities. Like we're not looking – like I've never watched that teen mom program. Yeah. So but I is have. there a black girl on that on that show? Um. I've wa- I've never seen a black girl on it. Right, or what a Hispanic it, girl or – No, what it is mostly is um, white girls – who have partners and they're all teens and the partners are teens and they are pregnant and miserable and the partner is doing whatever and they're upset because the partner won't, you know, get into this family lifestyle and there's a lot of strife and a lot of begging. And it's like, I I feel like it really goes into the traditional gender roles of the subservient pregnant woman at home the partner is doing whatever he wants. He doesn't have to settle down. And then there's conflict, which is what the show is based on in between that. And then the mom ends up raising the kids. And Right. But it's, I mean, I, I think that the main, the hegemonic message is that this is a, this is a white, like a white cultural phenomenon rather. Mm-hmm. And so, and what the statistics and the evidence is saying is that in those, in that particular population, which is interesting, like you're absolutely talking about the right thing in that our perception is that teen rates is rising because we're focusing on this white audience. Because we see more white girls right. that are pregnant and, that, and of course the actual real main message is that for that particular cohort of people the teen pregnancy rate is lowering but for hispanic and black women the teen pregnancy remains twice as high and so that's naturally embedded in poverty like Mm -hmm. in communities that are poverty stricken so some of the things that i read about were that publicly funded um public health clinics where teens can potentially go and get things like contraceptive or sex educational or messages about that those things are like unbelievably sparse in um, communities of color, marked and they're much more traditionally or right now. R- r- traditionally and right now, mm-hmm. so nothing has improved as far as those community services are um, just so sparse. Like 
in places like the south side of Chicago or, you know, those classic examples of communities that um, are sort of poverty-stricken and go through that cycle of poverty constantly because mm-hmm. teenage pregnancy is naturally, I think, imbued in, in, in communities where poverty is an issue, right? Because if you become a teenage preg- if you become a pregnant teen, then you have to probably stop school mm-hmm. and then you have to, and then you're limited to your what you're able to do into the workforce. Your ability to now get into college is much diminished. And so there's this constant cycle of poverty that you and your community are sort of stuck in because mm-hmm. you don't have access to services. Right. Which is that sort of fundamental issue about the division between of race here in the United States and cultures, you know, where mm-hmm. we keep poverty in a in a certain community of colour or whatever. So mm-hmm. and I think just teenage pregnancy is totally totally in in that as well right we don't see that as much because ellen and i uh, we record the podcast in vermont and vermont is a um it's a snowy white state Mm -hmm. in more ways than one right and so we don't necessarily see that issue here where we are but certainly across the national national average that's what that's what you see and um one of the things i did read read is that um so 75 percent of pregnancies among that teen cohort that 15 to 19 year old are unplanned fucking obviously could you imagine having like when we were just when we were talking about doing this podcast i was just imagining myself as a teen mother like i could barely (laughs) get my tampons in on time like in my vagina on time (laughs) as a teenager (laughs) and just the idea of being responsible for another human being at that age in my life was just like i could not have even imagined it no and I, I, did you know any, I didn't know any teen mums. The, the only person I knew who got pregnant, or who I went to high school with was a girl and she actually got pregnant like the last two months of our senior year and, but otherwise, I mean, uh, unlimited number, I went to an all girls school, so possibly an unlimited number of them had abortions during that time, but there was only one girl who I knew went on to, to, to keep a pregnancy. I only knew, yeah, when I was a sophomore, one of my classmates, she hid her pregnancy for a very long time, too. I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, it was kind of surprising. And then, so she had a toddler when we graduated, and her senior picture was her with a toddler. And that was the only teen pregnancy that I knew of growing up in rural Maine. Right. I mean, that's, um, and that's the but thing. there was, I feel like when I was, like, in the 1990s, there was a huge push. There was that safe sex and the anti-AIDS movement. Right. And that was, like, big with, you know, MTV kind of being the, the moving force and all the celebrities, you know. like. But again, wasn't that kind of, like, abstinence-based? Well, no, it was safe sex. So, like, salt and pepper. Remember they had, like... Left eye had like a condom taped on her glasses. Oh my god! I lived in Australia. In Australia. So anyway, it was like this huge thing. So all of my friends that were having sex. So I started having sex when I was fourteen. So when I was a freshman in high school, the girl, like my girlfriends that were having sex, we used like multiple, like we used sponges, we used condoms. A lot of us were on the pill, so we used a minimum of two. You know, yeah, right. So my mother methods. put my mother put me on the pill when I was fourteen, fifteen. I didn't have sex until I was sixteen, but she. But that's one of the things about coming from sort of like a middle. The pill made your ass fat. It did make my ass fat. Are you kidding me? I gained like fucking fifty pounds, <laughs> and then there was Good no job, chance Mom. I was having sex <laughs> because nobody was having sex with the fat girl. Right. Yeah. No. So my aunt had been diagnosed with cancer, and there was research at that time where if you start a hormonal a pill, you know, you can, there is some evidence to say that you mm. can prevent um, cervical and uterine cancer. Well, we cancer. didn't, like, 
we would go and we'd shoplift. We'd steal our contraception. Right. And um, and then one of our friend's moms, who was like a more of a forward thinking, like she took a couple of the girls to go get to get on the pill at right. Planned Parenthood. And then we're all like, oh, we could do that. And then, you know, I remember. So you, at that time, you were able to go and do that without your parents' permission. Yeah. So okay. I, I was. I probably got on the pill when I was sixteen, and I, my friend and I went. Like she sat there, like with me for my pap, and you know, but it was definitely without parental consent. Right. So I have this is from um, the Goodmarker Institute, and they say that 21 states and the District of Columbia, Columbia explicitly allow all minors to consent to contraceptive services. Um, three states allow minors to consent to contraceptive services if a physician determines that the minor would face a health hazard if she is not provided with contraceptive services. So there's still many states here in the United States that um, that there are all these roadblocks mm-hmm. in order for, uh, for teens to get contraceptive services, like they need parental consent or they need to have some sort of medical condition or they need to have a doctor who is willing to give it to them. And the states of Texas and Utah prohibit state funds from being used to provide minors with confidential contraceptive services. So if you are a teenager really? in Texas and Utah, you need need to have your parent with you to consent if you want to be able to go to Planned Parenthood or any of those places. And Texans. What's the deal with Texas? What's the deal with Texas? What is the deal with Texas? That's that's its own podcast. Right, that is. We could do a podcast on Texas. What's the deal? So there are still major barriers to teens being able to access contraceptive services Mm -hmm. with the idea still being that um, if you do that, teens just won't have sex. And having previously been teens... I was a teen once. It's a long, long, long time ago. I was on ago. the Oregon Trail when I was a teen. <laughs> she was My entire family, half of them didn't make it across <laughs> 40 in the river, and then the other half died of dysentery. It was terrible. So, but in that age, I was able to steal I spent my teenies on the Mayflower. I used the Today's Sponge, and I was able to shoplift Trojans <laughs> <laughs> at, the local, at the local store. Well, so... Well, when, okay, but the, the idea, 90s, being, though, the idea so. being that teens are still going to keep having sex, which right. is why we see such a high teen. And then when I was a teen, we did the, there was this huge push from the students to get contraceptives available in the health clinic at the high school. Right. And it was like on the news, it was this huge thing that we had condoms. You could go and get condoms, but you couldn't just walk in and grab condoms out of a bowl. You had to go and have like sit down with the school nurse. and do all- So I don't think anybody used that service, right. but it was this huge thing that everybody fought for. But then it was once again put together in a way that was kind of judgy and preventative where you had to talk to somebody about the fact that you're having sex. So they're like, look at this great thing we did. But like what fucking teenager is going to want to go talk to the school nurse be like, hey, man. Like, I just want to start doing it. Right. You know, exactly. can I have some condoms? Like, what if he puts it in my ass? Like, nobody's going to say that. <laughs> number one, it's God's blind eye. So everybody knows. Nobody knows that's what's happening. And number two, like, that's not a conversation that's easily held between teens and older adults adult figures absolutely i think whenever you talk about um offering contraceptive services it's only half asked if you're not offering contraceptive services along with comprehensive sex education and um you know and that includes the whole gamut of not just talking about what contraceptive options are available but also talking about all the things that we have talked about previously mm-hmm. and that's like um navigating sexual relationships and STDs and, you know, consenting and what does consent look like and all those kind of stuff. So you can't really have one without the other, I don't right. think. And for some reason we're just, like, as a 
population. Where there's just still so many of us out there who are so afraid. Like they're af- afraid of sex. We keep talking about that, don't we? Like the the idea that there's just this huge segment that, mm-hmm. of a society that are just so afraid of sex, and it's especially amongst teenagers, which well, is just weird. And I'm thinking of one of my friends that's a travel nurse, and she was in a. Um, Alaska for a long time and she said that there's this huge prevalence of chlamydia I guess and there's a lot of young pregnancy this is once again qualitative evidence so I don't have any numbers to back this up this is like from a conversation I had with a couple nurses that went to Alaska but they she said like in the airport there's like bowls of condoms like everywhere you go there's bowls of condoms right because they want to prevent the chlamydia which is also good for it but people can freely take it right but then that to, like and I'm that is that's an awesome initiative like I'm not I th- I'm fully in accordance with that but once again that places the onus of navigating contraceptive onto like one particular partner does does that make sense like well because female condoms are terrible to use nobody wants to use have those. you ever used a female condom <laughs> fuck no once <laughs> I again it's like, I, I, a sandwich bag seems easier I, I, yeah, once well, again the, the sandwich- one the one time I saw a female condom it looked like a sandwich bag yeah. and I was like why would anybody put put that inside yourself like that doesn't seem doesn't seem right but again that i the uh, again the onus of like so if you're a female teen and um you know we've talked about navigating relationships around sex like mm-hmm. how many as a teenage girl were you in a position to say to your sexual partner here's a condom I, will you use it yeah you were yeah i, I said something like just think of my vagina like a golden glove this is a beautiful <laughs> Wait, I'm not, this is a beautiful golden glove, and you can't sully it. That is the conversation you had as a 14-year-old. I'm just putting in it out my there. Mind, Did you p- have that conversation, or are you bullshitting? It probably sounded more like, oh, can you put this on? <laughs> <laughs> in my head. <laughs> it was like, don't sell it, sully don't it, the s- beauty box. Like, this is... This is sacred. Yeah. This is how you enter the kingdom, sir. You <laughs> imagine yourself like Indiana Jones, and I am the temple of not doom. I mean, I feel love. like I, I went the wrong place, but you know, w- w- warmth. Yes, warmth, love. love. Like you're gonna find yourself at home here, right? But you can't dirty up your house, right? You need to right. keep that thing clean. Mm-hmm. So, as usual, you <laughs> you were a better teen than me, right? And I probably didn't navigate those conversations very well. well. It was, I was always like deathly Holy afraid. Shit. It was not because I cared about my body. I was so deathly afraid of being the girl in my family that got pregnant. Oh, right. I was taught to shame sex it's to such a degree, like my innate whoriness, which I was always taught that I was innately a whore, right. that um, I, if I had an STD or was pregnant, like I would never live past that. So it wasn't for anything like go female power. I right. didn't want to get pregnant, and I didn't want to get lumps on my vagine. So what you're saying is if we really make our teens feel guilty about themselves, yeah. that's an effective message. Yeah, I think if you really emotionally manipulate people <laughs> to a degree that they are so terrified of letting people <laughs> down that they will make better choices, not for them, but really just for the for everybody involved. I just want to say that neither the CDC nor the U.S. government advocate that type of approach. In their evidence, but I just want to put they? that out there. I feel like the U.S. government really, really well. Let's let's go to that angle. Let's move to that angle. So we talked about how from 2007, 2008, um, our illustrious leader at that time, President Obama, enacted a, quite a significant change in public mm-hmm. policy towards contraceptive services and teenage pregnancy. 
zip right through to <laughs> the year 4050, which is where I feel we are now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Doomsday. <laughs> this is it. Oh, boo. And our um, illustrious leader, mm-hmm. President Trump. Uh, so in April of this year, um, the Trump administration released two pregnancy prevention programs called nicely the TPPP, and they're actually funding opportunities. So if I go back, so in 2007, 2008, the Obama, uh, Obama administration did the same thing. So what they do is they have this huge pool of money and they offer up funding opportunities for organisations to mm-hmm. come and apply for grants in order to go and provide sex education services to the community. Sounds great. Right. So, and but their um, stipulations, the Obama stipulations, were that the programs that they were going, they were only going to fund, had to be, again, evidence-based. So step forward to the year 4050, where we are now with our illustrious leader, President Trump. Um, and so they also have um, those funding opportunities, which are called FOAs, um, but their mondus operandi has now regressed back to the year 1750 Mm. where um, only those programs that promote abstinence um, will be funded by the um, TPPP. So, I mean, within... And this has happened really rapidly as well. Like within the last, how long has he been president for? I don't know. Is I feel like I've had years? kind of a aneurysm. For it that. feels like it's been sixty-five that, years. It's like a focal seizure. <laughs> I'm not the sure. Presidency. <laughs> so within, I'm going to say, is it eighteen months? Oh God, I just I feel know. like I have aged in eighteen months. Um, the, <laughs> so those funding opportunities have been completely stripped back in order to only um, fund those that are based on. Non-evidence-based programs, absolutely so only until marriage because programs. I just think about like, and I have this conversation argument with people. They're like, you can't teach them how to do this and this because then they're going to want to do it. I'm like, have you, do you remember being a teenager? Right. Do you remember like? And to me, like the like, just not forget about evidence or forget about religious or morals or anything like that. It's fucking fundamental math, right? It's math. If you want people to wait until they're married to have sex, then what you have to look at is what is the age that people are getting married? And that is later and later and later. So are you asking us to not have sex until we're 34? Like, is that what you want? Do me? You, are you asking me? I, like, no, 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 I would never want that. <laughs> like, does Mitch McConnell think that we should not have sex until we're 34, which is now around about the average age that people are getting well, married? I mean, but how about the other thing is, why can't you have sex? Right. What is wrong with having like, sex? I don't know how Mitch McConnell have se- has sex, but he obviously doesn't have the kind of sex I have, which is really enjoyable and, and a fundamental part of my life and something that makes me feel good about myself, mm-hmm. which is probably why he has no chin. Because well, it's you know, like I recess back. My dad taught me they can't trust any man with no chin. Yeah, They're just I, innately weak humans. That's, that's true. And the little well, noses too. Those little noses. You know that whole face slides from the like the from brow the tr- down, dribbles down to the chin. Like you don't have sex with those men, right? So I don't. I'm sorry. And my very discerning sexual preferences. You can't. I, but, but I cannot say in my career that I've never had sex with a man without a chin because. <laughs> I mean, that would, that would be asking me had, to do a lot had no of recall. Jaw. It was the <laughs> that I'm not able to do. Well, but okay. But, so this is my question, though. So we say we can't have sex to ma- till marriage, but then the whole child marriage thing. So right. So in Wait, which so I, if, it would be so nice if somebody had a really good statistic for this. <gasps> 
shade is here. <laughs> so, so <laughs> she does such a good lead in, and that's probably why I asked her to do this podcast with me. Uh, so one of the really this is just this is just so fucking far out. It will just absolutely blow your mind, listeners. So um, many of you may or have well have heard about the um, arm of the U.S. government, which is called USAID, and USAID is the um, arm of the US government that provides foreign aid to developing countries. One of the mandates of USAID over the last however many years has been to provide funding towards helping um, to combat child marriage across mm-hmm. the developing world. That has been one of their mandates. And what's, what constitutes child marriage? Right, so any uh, uh, basically anyone under the age of 18 okay. for, for USAID is, um, is considered to... So um, child brides and child marriage because, as the evidence has said and the US government has said emphatically, is that... Um, the consequences of child marriage are this entrenchment of poverty, poverty entrenchment, right? So if Mm -hmm. we're trying to help developing countries grow and expand and build their economies, then you can't have half the population enslaved into a marriage and burdened with 20 kids. Mm -hmm. The most interesting thing about this, right, the dichotomy of this, is that the United States itself has incredibly lax child marriage laws. So um, most of the states in the United States require the parties to be at least 18. However, there are a whole bunch of states that have no limits whatsoever on how old you can be to get married. And even more so, um, there are a bunch of states that actually encourage child marriage in the case of pregnancy. Um, so one of the uh, biggest ones was, this is this was just absolutely, I couldn't believe it, uh, so New Hampshire, which is the <laughs> state next door to us where... You know, apparently they're supposed to be our brothers and sisters in arms in terms mm-hmm. of New England progressiveness. Mm-hmm. The actual, the New Hampshire's minimum marriage age um, is actually 13 years old. And uh, in two th- 2007, a bill was introduced to try and raise the minimum age of marriage to at least 16. Um, and I'm going to name and shame this guy. So Representative David Bates from the New Hampshire legislation legislated um, argued that they shouldn't do that because they wanted to be able to preserve the option of legal teen marriage. Um, and so... One of the things that we um, so uh, so allowing a pregnant who is teen a uh, teen who is pregnant rather to marry the father of the child. So can the father of the child also be thirteen? He can't. Yeah. So they can so two minors can olds. marry as long as they have um, parental consent and a judge signs off. So what? See, now I'm going back to thinking about you know my first sexual partner who was also 14 and had we not used 14 types of birth control and had we married right could you imagine being yeah, I mean, but even more to me even more disturbing of, of to that is the idea of a 13 year old being married off to a 35 year old who wasn't actually a consenting partner in sex but was actually a rapist and that right. is a, that is like one of the fundamental issues around these laws is that in often in, often in cases particularly in communities where tradition, you know, like traditional communities where mm-hmm. being a, te- a pregnant teen is just seen as, you know, a total devastating thing is that these young girls are actually being married off to their rapists in order to prevent the rapist from being sent to jail for statutory rape and order just to try and mitigate shame like within the community. It's well, just you know, it's un- so interesting too as you think about, you know, the young the young teens and when they have these older partners who are maybe predatory and 
you know, your perception when you're like a 13, 14, you know, 15 year old girl and somebody in their 20s is pursuing you. Like, it's not that you're thinking that they're being predatory. You're thinking, you know, oh, they see me. Oh, like, I'm a lot more mature, you know. Right. So a lot of those, like the grooming and all that kind of stuff that happens, you know, your ability to understand that as a young teen is different than than a, a adult right so you know say you are in some relationship and you do get married and then you know what happens down the line for you well what happens is you're still a child and so you have no adult rights like this is you can be married off at the age of 13 or 14 but you still have you have no rights to anything you have no right to go and hire a lawyer for yourself you have no right so your part your husband becomes your legal guardian your husband then becomes uh, hold on i'm vomiting in my mouth right so then like in multiple cases this this man who raped you who the families around you now decided would be best if you married he's now your parental He's now you're not only your husband, he's your parental guy. It's like a form of enslavement. And you have to imagine that in many of these cases, if some older man has raped a 13-year-old girl, he's not a good guy. Like, he's not a good guy. And so, like, obviously... you can't get in the way of love. (laughs) Obviously. I think that in this whole conversation, you're not talking about true love. Right, I'm not. Or to blame. So people who are under 18 cannot retain a lawyer. So if you're a 13-year-old rape victim who's now been married to your perpetrator, you have no legal means to file for divorce or to even, you know, claim victimhood at all. You're, you have nothing. Like you, what you is work. it? Is it uh, Stockholm Syndrome? Right, or where you become... But I don't, like, I mean... I'm not sure that any of these, I mean, I'm, that's possibly a case, but you could be a 14-year-old child mar- child bride mm-hmm. who's completely within, has all her senses about her, realises like, yeah, that awesome. everything is fucked up, but still has absolutely no legal options to do anything, to do absolutely anything. And in many of these states, the people who decide, you know, the people who sign off on these marriage certificates are the local county clerks. You know, like, I love my local clowny clerk. She's a really nice lady. She's probably about 80 and has Mm -hmm. lived in the town her whole life. So her worldview is, you know, fairly local Mm -hmm. to a 20-mile radius Mm -hmm. around the town clerk's office. So these are the people who are theoretically... Thinking this is the best. These are the 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 guard walls between deciding whether a child can marry the rapist or not. Like, in many states, that's the only person who has to consent to the... In some states, you have to go through it through to a judge. Mm -hmm. But if you have both families who are... Supporting it. ...who are supporting the marriage, then you have to have a pretty... um, a judge who's prepared to go against that in in order to rule against that um 20 states do not set an age floor by statute that which girls can get married oh, it's just it's unbelievable so yeah in 10 states clerks alone and i hate to say it but vermont is one of those states that um that allows a, a freaking town clerk to be able to basically be the police on whether this you know is what is so interesting about this is the amount of laws about consent there are too like in vermont i mean there's like the romeo and juliet and there are all these different laws about who you can consent to have sex with right that are totally against the child marriage laws but then you have these laws that say okay it's not saying like okay you broke the law by having sex but now you're legally allowed to get married you which is what you're saying about the about the statutory rape, right? But we so those are contradictory laws, yes. even to begin with. Because we're saying you raped a girl, but if you marry her, then it's then okay. It's, yeah, 
then you can kind of cover up your crime, which is and so going back to the teen pregnancy, there are seven states in the United in the United States that expressly allow the marriage age to be dropped if the girl is pregnant. Like, fuck me, that is just exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. That's a fucking exception to the rule to allow a case of statutory rape where the girl gets pregnant in order to be able to allow so the marriage So is she age. allowed to, like, does she have to sign it too or her parents can sign it? In some states, the parents can, can, sign, can sign for but her. What if Remember, she she's not a legal it. adult. So right. she doesn't have the ability to legally sign for herself because she has no legal rights That's as an so adult. Crazy. She's still a child. So theoretically, she's still under the jurisdiction of her parents. So those states were seven states where um, you can lower the minimum marriage age in the case of pregnancy are Arkansas, Indiana... Maryland, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, and Oklahoma. Are those the states where you can't buy NyQuil or Sudafed if you're less than 18? <laughs> Quite possibly. Because, I mean, I feel like they're really doing a bang-up job then. Like, you can't go to the store and get cold medicine, <laughs> but, but you can be married. You can you can be married, and you can probably buy an AK-47 mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. There's, like, there's only a few things that this country allows you to do as a minor, and that's get raped and buy a firearm. Right. You and can't you, combat and, the common cold. <laughs> but you, <laughs> you cannot combat the. You cannot buy cigarettes. <laughs> you cannot buy a lottery ticket. Right. But you can get raped and too you can risky, buy a man. It's too risky. So, um, so the CDC. I was looking at the, so their child marriage versus birth birth rates. So it said the rate of pregnancy in the 1950s was 80 pregnancies per a thousand girls between the. Or women, excuse me, between the ages of fifteen what to was nineteen. That? This was in nineteen fifties. Oh yeah, and now it's dropped to fifty per one thousand in the year two thousand. And now we're down to twenty two. So you can see so, the trajectory. Trajectory is heading but down. But the percentage of unmarried women between the ages of fifteen to nineteen. So it was fifteen. Wait, wait a second. Ellen's getting confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1950, there was 80 married girls right. per 1,000. Right. So that's almost exactly up with the pregnancy rate. Right, and because now, if you got pregnant, you got married. Yeah, and now in 2000, it's 15. Right. So even the pregnancy rate went down, but not as drastically as the percentage of women that were unmarried. So people aren't getting married now, but and the pregnancy rates are going down. And then I thought it was also interesting, like when you think about people's perceptions, is that the teen pregnancy rates, are maybe they're going down because abortions are... But abortions are becoming yeah. harder and harder to get. And that well, was the other thing before that Before they were so hard to get, though, before it became, like, the more recent, you know, leadership and laws, right. that the teen pregnancy rate and abortion rate was both going down. Because I've heard people argue and yeah. say, well, you know, if you're using abortion as birth control, then, of course, it's going to go down. But Have you ever met anybody in your life that that was their plan, where abortion was their pregnancy plan? I have never met a goddamn person alive who thought that abortion would be their pregnancy plan. No, I haven't. I mean, I'm sure maybe that is a It's a last-minute resort when you get pregnant. Yeah. But it's not... You don't go out for a few drinks at night, see a smoking guy across the bar and think, like, you know what? I'll just uh, schedule it. Look, why don't I just text those people now? Right. I mean, I will say, I also have not anybody met anybody that's living as a human cat, <laughs> which I've seen on TV that there are those people. That's... <laughs> 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 or people who like to pretend to be furniture. 
oh for sexual God. pleasure. And I we want to. totally desperately want to. That's coming up to our kink episode, which is going to be wonderful. That is just a little teaser. A lot tidbit. of really great words. What do you call a teaser? That's a little, it's a little teaser. teaser. That's a little teaser. For our whole kink. I feel like this is going to have to be a series because I'm getting the best information. We will we will have um, to do a podcast on kink because we know some yeah, shit. We don't know any humans <laughs> right now that is admitting to it. But. That's the caveat. We don't know anybody that admits to standing with a lampshade on their head for sexual pleasure. But if no you've never heard cats, of pop play, nor neither had any, we. any women using abortion as no. birth control. So those are three three people we've not met yet. Right. So if you're out there, please contact us because I'd love to meet <laughs> we you. We would love to hear Love to meet you. So U.S. teens are twice as likely to give birth as um, Canadian teens, our neighbours to the north. Uh, and <laughs> ten times as likely as teens in Switzerland. I guess one of the fundamental aspects that I I think if if you have a really um, puritanical view of sex and you don't believe that um, anybody should have it, but particularly teens, one of the like driving forces against allowing teens to get pregnancy is if you believe like that poverty is a problem in the United States or in in communities. If you believe that there is a problem with poverty stricken communities, then you really have. To, you have to be on the side of trying to prevent teen pregnancy because one of the things about being a tegna- pr- pregnant teen is that you're much more likely to be entrenched in poverty. And so I think that if you are a person who's thinking about those kind of things, then unfortunately for you, naturally you have to be looking towards uh, combating teen pregnancies. One of the things that I read about was the scarcity of comprehensive, publicly funded sexual sex clinics, you know, that provide that kind of stuff in poverty-stricken areas. So you have to be... I mean, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but when I'm thinking about conversations I have with people about teen sex and teen pregnancy, that is not even a blip on the radar, though. I mean... About where can they access No, services? about how people feel about teen sex, like, or people that are parents of teens. And, you know, they, there was an article about... Um, was it Denmark about how they do their sexual health education oh and it's super comprehensive and it starts from kindergarten and it's very much like so when you do like this is consent and this is what you need it's not like don't do it because you're not emotionally mature enough it's like we know this is going to happen and um, and it's about like the parents if you have your boyfriend or girlfriend over like allowing them to spend the night right and even that part of a conversation makes people crazy like I people go bananas and I'm like how right. could you do that you're just telling them to have sex and blah 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 and it's so and so how are you going to have any other part of the conversation when I was a teen I wasn't allowed to have a boy in my bedroom I had sex in the living room I had sex in the car I had sex on the lawn I had sex in the you laundry know, the dark room at school I had sex in the school you had bathroom sex in the school bathroom yeah but I wasn't allowed to have a boy in my bedroom so which would be better for me like, right. really is, I mean, teens, anybody, anybody that wants to do something can be very creative to create ways to do it. Oh, absolutely. You know, so is it better to think of, and I'm just spitballing here, like, is it better to say, like, you know, this is how I want you to respect yourself and how to have conversations, not, like, spend hours planning on how, like, where you can get laid. Right. Because, you know... Well, that's a really interesting question because if you have been a teenager who has had to have sex in 
difficult positions. You would think it would be easier to be a parent who wants to prevent that, and yet that seems to well, be the biggest and issue. And then I think about this all the time. It's like, well, my kids, when my boys are older, like, how am I going to navigate that? Right. I don't know. No, and neither in my do head, I. I'm like, um, teenage girls are going to be all over them because they're very gorgeous. <laughs> right. And those girls better get their dirty mitts. But then I'm just perpetuating the sexual shame. Right. Which I don't want to do. And I'm also... I don't want my kids to grow up. And maybe that's part right. of it as well, is that you don't want your kids to be sexual beings because that means they're no longer your children, kind of. But we're not, like, nobody's teaching me as an adult how to navigate this, you know, this differing opinion of you want your baby to be protected, you want them to make the best choices, you want them to be always safe, yeah. but you have to let them grow up. And, you know, when you, th- when you talk to, when I've talked to women that have had teen pregnancies and had, babies as teens they're always say like they don't want that for their child right but it was being a mother was the best thing you know so there's this really it's a it's two very different things and you can't say to your kid like i don't want you to have sex as a teen i don't want you to turn out the way i did and they're like what the fuck i'm your kid was i a huge mistake Uh but how do we teach people about sexual shame about being aware of what's just part of our human DNA, you know what I mean? Right. And I Being will sexual say... sexual creatures and making good choices and not having, like, the weight of society on you with your choices and are we, like, just breaking them to begin with so that it's so much pressure they're just like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want. So I think that, again, comes down to offering in the Scandinavian way, like, comprehensive sex education. So all the evidence I and found very, about... very, very simple practical furniture. <laughs> Function. There is, I could only be a table. There is no way that I could, like, <laughs> squat as a chair for, I mean, an hour and a half, whatever that was. That was just fucking crazy, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could things. maybe be on my hands and knees for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, but in a squat against a wall, it's Mm-mm. not going to happen. No, but you would look... I mean, I you mean, would have a really well-defined... And if I had a lampshade, it would <laughs> definitely be purple. And it would really? need to have those dangly things I would have down. googly eyes on it and a big smiley face drawn. So if you're offering comprehensive sex education across the board, then what the evidence says is that when you do that, the the teen, like, initiation of sex doesn't go down. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of the big... That's one of the big fallacies that we constantly have to push back against is that education doesn't... Like, providing sex education doesn't mean that teenagers start having sex earlier. And, in fact, the opposite is true. Many are able to make much more thoughtful decisions about when is the right time for them to have to have sex because now they have a greater understanding of what sex looks like and we've talked at length about consent, about how to Mm -hmm. appropriately consent for the kind of sex that you want to have in your life. Well, you know, another thing I think about, like, is when I've taught sex ed um, in high schools is that the question comes up is, why is sex so bad? Right. Why is sex so bad? bad? Like, why do all the grown-ups tell me I can't have it? Like, what's the big deal? Like, what's the big deal yeah, about why it? Do we, why do we, as a society, perpetuate? And it's like... No, I can I'm just, not saying I haven't had really bad sex. Oh, dude, I've had so much bad sex. I have, and sex. it's, like, super so disappointing. So much bad sex in my life. But, um... And a lot of it was as a teenager, too. Because mm. as I was not in a position to be forthright about what kind of sex I wanted or... You know, there's... A, a, I went to an all-girls school, and... 
I mean, I, like like I said, I had sex at 16. And, I mean, I know that I was surrounded by girls who were fucking every weekend. Like, the, the idea that, uh, you know, as a bunch, because we didn't have boys in our class, mm-hmm. and that's a complete fallacy. But definitely it was years and years of um, sort of, like, pretty average sex before realizing like that you could that I could ask for things or that I was entitled to things in sex and Mm -hmm. being prepared to like ask for them that that came and that was because I never got sex educated like that that, those kind of conversations I I never had those conversations but I can't imagine a conversation that would really teach I feel like there's some things that need to be taught with experience too like I had lots of bad sex and I was just like oh this is what sex is this is what sex is is. this is fun because there's like other stuff going on I mean you clearly as a teenager make out way more than you do as a grown up Right. Right. So there's all this foreplay that's happening just because whatever, you have more time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, teenagers really? have a lot more a lot time lot. than adults. <laughs> so that's, that's right. one if thing we're gonna invest to their <laughs> advantage <laughs> is that they have endless amounts of time. Yeah. They do not have to cook dinner for four. <laughs> there know. isn't a big fat fucking pile of laundry waiting to be folded. Right. And they don't have to but, shovel work. So, and I remember when I You're all like, fucking lucky, you teenagers. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Get married at 13. <laughs> yeah, see how much fun you'll have. Um, but, you know, and then, like, I remember the first time I had, like, an orgasm with sex, and I was like, whoa! Oh, my... It right? Was but it was mind, years. Mind-blowing! And it was years afterwards, and I was like, whoa, whoa, what just happened? Like, what the fuck just happened? Right. And why did that happen to me? Because that hasn't happened before. Oh, my God, I just remember the first time that happened to me, it was, like, revelatory. Like, what? Yeah. And I think I might have had a partial stroke. <laughs> As a matter of fact. I and, uh, <laughs> and I kept thinking, what the hell happened for the last five years? Like, what was, right, I, what doing? was I doing? What was I doing wrong? Right. And I remember thinking they must have been having terrible sex too. But then, no, they, they were probably just having normal sex. But I was the one missing out. Um, so, again, I think that when... If well, we it's because your vagina's on backwards, though. That's, but that's also another episode is the story of... <laughs> the story <laughs> how Jane of- has an upside-down vagina. <laughs> And no, you can't see it. <laughs> it's only for special people. It goes people. sideways. It's actually. only for, it's only for the it's only for the large population of men <laughs> who have seen it before. Um, again, going back at the idea of teenage pregnancy in being entirely wrapped up in the idea of comprehensive sex education and providing services. So we know that this particular administration has been. Um, again, with a Republican-led House that they're always against, the defunding of Planned Parenthood, but it's those essential services, those, you know, those frontline clinics that are actually at the forefront of preventing teenage pregnancies. Well, it makes me think about, like, in Haiti, when we were, when we worked for Midwives for Haiti, they had that, like, rural clinic, like, the van you went up and you set up and and everybody could come and get their prenatal care. Like, what in poverty-stricken areas, what if you had a you know, a contraceptive van or right. something. Right, and you I could think they pads. were. They, were they doing... And I've heard of some... There are some places where they set up, like, one day a week, they could... They would set up a clinic and... But it's not widespread, and it's not because there's, like, a national movement to provide these services. Right. And yet there's a desperate need. Like, people want those essential right. services in their communities. Like, there's no doubt but about what that whatsoever. But what makes people think about it, not as a moral standpoint, but about, like, sexual health. And if people only look at it financially right as an economic like okay so do we like with welfare cervical cancer right 
you know, all these kind of health costs that we don't want to pay for. We don't want to have socialized medicine. We don't want to have to pay for everybody just for everything. So why don't we set up some services so people have less... Like less right. That is the constant like diseases. argument that I think just goes around in circle. It's like a mouse on a wheel. So we know that teen mothers cost the U.S. government around nine point four billion dollars. So that's not just the cost of those mo- those teenage mothers now being on welfare and needing um, essential services, but also lost productivity that those girls are now not able to contribute to the economy. Nine point four billion. So you have people who are bitching about teen mothers. They don't want teen mothers, and yet they. Don't they're bitching do about it. unemployment, they're bitching about welfare, right. they're bitching about people that use Medicaid and Medicare. But they also don't want to provide simple essential services that would totally mitigate that issue. And mm-hmm. that is just, don't you just feel like when you you hear that stuff on the news and you hear that rhetoric coming from people in Washington, D.C., that you just want to put a fork in your eye because... But I don't think it's just Washington. And I hear that when I have conversations, when I'm getting a beer oh, with I know, I know. peers, and I think... You know, it's it's so unbelievably it's same as the conversation is like, well, what was that girl doing out drunk at not at you right. know and eleven p.m. What did she expect was going to happen? And it's always Probably the that girl. Could, yeah, it's always the girl. We never place the onus either on teenage boys or on or, or on men as though they are in any way a part of this a part of this issue. They're, they're, we sort of don't discuss them in in that way at all. We, the focus is always on these young girls and how they got themselves right. and how teach they the girls. got themselves into and, this predicament and I'm thinking about like when you do the teen pregnancy talk and with girls you're talking about how to protect themselves you're not talking to the boys and be like hey right so when you know if you're not using protection and you are having sex how do you know when to get your penis out of their vagina right I mean I don't know that I, I've never heard do you know the answer to that I don't <laughs> should you be giving those talks I don't give those talks. (laughs) But, you know, but that whole conversation of, I mean, that's not conversation. Yeah, just being open and honest about, yeah, about those having those frank discussions. And how not to get pregnant. Right. Girls, how not to get pregnant. Do you know one of the saddest things that I learned when I was doing research on this topic is about, so we have a. Um, opioid crisis here in the state of Vermont and New, mm-hmm. and in New Hampshire in the whole of New England. Although, on a total side note, I did um, recently read that the New England area is actually one of the few areas that is seeing a decline in the rate of really yeah in the, oh, in the rate of opioid overdose in comparison to um, su- southern states and um, the Midwest. But so a consequence of the opioid um, epidemic has been the um, high numbers of children who have now been placed in foster care. Mm-hmm. So the foster care system in those states is just bursting at the seams. And one of the f- really, really sad things is that t- t- teens who live in foster care are twice as likely as those not in foster care to fall pregnant. So again, that goes back to that idea of just perpetuating that cycle of poverty, that cycle of you know violence where we keep you know these these people where they are like it just makes it so much harder for, I mean being a teen being a child who grows up in the foster system like life is hard enough but now you're much more likely to be a victim of sexual violence mm-hmm. you're much more likely to um, you fall pregnant you you don't have access to essential services oh, I was just I just thought that was really sad as if it's not freaking hard enough to be. Like being a teen is hard enough, man. (laughs) Like I just think my mom worked at um, it was a facility, so it was for incarcerated teens that are pregnant, 
And so it was age 12 to 18. And if you were in jail, like if you got sentenced to be in prison and you were pregnant, you could live in this home. It was a lockdown facility. Right. But it was age 12 to 18. Oh, my God. And, I, you know, my mom's talked about, like, being, so she was a doula. She, she would go and be there as a support person for the mom, for these 12-year-old girls having babies, and how mean the medical staff was to them and how they wouldn't offer them the same pain relief options. Mm-hmm. And they would, she's heard them say comments like, maybe this will make you think twice about getting pregnant again. And then the grandmother, so the, the child's mother comes in to meet her grandchild, and she's 27. That's right. That's you right. Know? You have grandmothers who are like in their early 40s. Cycle and, that you know, goes back, though, to what we were talking about, about how teens are unable to consent. Because their teenagers are unable to, you know, to consent to say have a lawyer, or they can't activate a lawyer or something like that. In many states, they can't consent to medical treatment. So even in the state of Vermont, if we have a teenage mother, they can't sign their permission to treat form themselves. They can sign for their baby, right. and but we, their I've parent has to sign work. for permission to yeah. treat. So that goes back to the idea: you have these teens who are coming in in labour who potentially can't request pain relief. They can't request but, an epidural. So I'm going to be a devil's advocate here, and things that I've heard people say is that is that like they don't they don't have those rights they are still a kid and if we if we teach them these things then we're just giving them um passive consent like saying that it's okay and you don't want to teach somebody it's okay to get pregnant you don't want to teach them that it's it's okay for you to be a teen mother or to be having sex and right, if, but I think if you, we're giving those them people the, already miss the boat on on being an educator right, but so what, what do you do when 40 percent of the country have missed the boat. Then then you have to take the opportunity that you have to start teaching now. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't punish them, but so once they have you now you're now we should be offering teens who then give birth freaking comprehensive sex education comprehend it's never too late to instigate that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. You know, those girls should not be leaving the freaking hospital without an IUD placed or or at least, you know, having a But long- they can't give consent. They can't you know, give think consent. About That's what, right. In, was it Georgia in the sixties that did all the involuntary ster- sterilization, sterilization for disabled women or women of minority. Right. They were having and they were sterilizing these these women without their consent. Or there was this huge case uh, in the, I believe it was 50s, up until the 70s in Southern California of Hispanic women that were going in and having babies. And in the Hispanic culture, having a large family is really important. That's like as a cultural... You know, you want to have a woman then you want to ha- that has a lot of babies. So these women were going in and being told they had to have an emergency C-section and being told that they sterilized them oh. because it was part of the procedure. And then it actually wasn't. They right. were just voluntarily... It, it was just a program They of were eugenics. just doing it of eugenics. And then these women, and, and it was talking to these women... I believe it was in the last 10 years, this documentary, and they were, they were talking about what it did emotionally to them and what it did to their lives and their marriages, that they were only able to have one child. Oh, and with their culture, like how it impacted them as women. And their like status their ability within the community. To be, yeah, to be fertile and to provide their families with the right. traditional family size. And then, and it actually talked to some of the doctors who were medical students and were the directors of the OB programs were like, this is what we're doing. This is what you're doing. Oh, wow. And they'd bring in forms and explain to these Spanish-speaking women. In English. In, yeah, and they're signing an English form, and they're telling them it's for something else. Oh, my God. And then they're sterilizing. So, I mean, yeah, where what's the line? Like, what I mean, do I believe that, you know, young women should all be on birth control? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
I do. I think so. I think but they I think should all, be on the long acting. Right. You but know? All, all young men should also have to be involved in that process as well. Like, the onus should not just be on no, women. No. But you can't, there's also, you can't force people to be on birth control. Right, you can't. I would like to. I, I mean, would like don't, to. There are definitely days where I would like to sit with a little blow depo vero and blow just, dart and in the grocery store yes. and just... Or but. even when, you know, uh, when cases of women who are coming in to deliver their seventh or eighth child and the Department of Communities and Families is waiting to take that because child. She because doesn't she doesn't have any of them. She has none of those char- children. I think that there there is... There, there, there is a space for society to step in and say, you know, we're, we're not going to sterilise you, but perhaps we're going to give you a IUD or something and give you, you know, five years for you to f- sort your life out. I, I, do, I do feel like there's, an, there's a chance for society to step in, but it's, but it's so dodgy. Going, it's, it's like this is such a murky line and, like, know. who are we to trample on anybody's rights? Like, right. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. So I think fundamentally if you wish to change the teen pregnancy rate is that, um, like, as we said right from the beginning, the vast majority of teens who get pregnant get do so completely unplanned. So we, you, you're starting at ground level. You're starting with comprehensive sex education from elementary school and you're offering comprehensive services in order to provide people with the contraceptive needs that, that they desire. And I mean, Right. And then there's there there always going to be people who fall through the cracks. Child marriage laws and sexual consent laws need to complement each other. Right. And they need to move with the times. Like, it's not 1954 anymore. And right. we need we need to, yeah, absolutely. I think there's really simple things that can be done. I mean, all I'm thinking now is that I need to get my vasectomy van on the planned road. on the road. And I can just start doing, like, LARG, like, long-acting birth control and maybe IUDs with the vasectomy van. Right, and I feel like you know, if Big Farm could start like well, investing just a little bit more money in male contraceptive. If you you get a vasectomy, IUD, or, or you know... No, the, you should get, you know, get 20 Vicodin. Why? Get, get a nice bunch of flowers in a juice box. You're not going to get the biz. <laughs> you're not thinking in a We're, business sense. Yeah, but you're sense. thinking in a my, eugenic sense. No, my... Maybe. Because my hours of operation is like 9 p.m. till 3 a.m. And I'm just going to drive around town. And as people come out of the bar. You're just looking for good working hours. Freedom. Freedom Mm -hmm. of movement. Mm -hmm. No, but I I do think that if Big Farm could possibly invest just a a smidge more money in male contraceptive as opposed to male enhancement. If they could just skim like 5% off the amount of money that they spend on making sure older men get erections. And just put that into a, a really decent, long-acting male contraceptive. You are so crazy. I'm, you are. I know. I have big dreams, big hopes. Yeah. It's the way I've always lived my life. Don't you know that male contraception actually makes their testicles shrivel up? That's what they've told and me. And invert. That's what they've told me. Like No, not from a science perspective, just men at a bar have told me. <laughs> Once again, There's no now you're way. doing my type of research. <laughs> Maybe we should leave it there. Because <laughs> right. once I start moving into Ellen's type of research, it's probably the end of the podcast. It's a lot more fun, though. It is, it is. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. And uh, thank you from Ellen. Thank you from Jade. I mean, I will say, I also have not anybody met anybody that's living as a human cat, <laughs> which I've seen on TV that there are those people. Or <laughs> <laughs> people who like to pretend to be furniture. Oh for sexual God. pleasure.